Today's episode is brought to you by Yelp, whose mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They're also helping me connect with you, which is totally awesome. Now here we go. I learned how to care for people. I learned what it really means to have relationships. I learned how to recover in my life. I learned what's important. We have that magic in our industry. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. On today's show, we chat with four-time James Beard award-winning TV personality, chef, writer, teacher, and social justice advocate, Chef Andrew Zimmern. What are the folks at the top of our industry doing to help us and themselves? Andrew's not only reached the pinnacles of success, he's done so while supporting and advocating for independent restaurants. Today we talk about where we are and where we're headed as an industry and what we can do to help each other. We dive right in as the chef discusses his three-pronged strategy to move forward. I got to tell you, man, it's funny. You stepped away and I could see the words behind you on the board. And I was like, safety, cash, pivots. And I'm like, I'm thinking the same thing. It's the, got to keep everyone safe, got to squirrel away every dollar and play conservative right now. And you have to pivot every, sometimes every day. With with one uh, one of our businesses, we actually, over the last two weeks, have pivoted three different times into things just because the the facts on the ground change. Right. Right. So, you know, I think, entrepreneurs that are are smart business people who are smart are are pivoting to things as they're not getting stuck in one metric that you know with the way things are going can be problematic well and it kind of it kind of speaks to the point which is you know obviously the hospitality industry has been hit incredibly hard um but it's also not like, you know, one restaurant to another. It's not like we haven't been staring into the abyss for quite some time now, right? Like the coronavirus just, yeah. didn't kill the the hospitality industry. It, it was already on its last leg. You know, this many, many sectors of it. Um, there were other sectors of it that, you know, had sort of figured it out. Um but, you know, the, the type of restaurants that I like to dine in that I own or co-own, uh, that you operate, um, that, you know, that, that when, when we talk about restaurant, those restaurants um, had so many pieces of their uh, business models broken. And as I've, I'm, I'm really, I'm loving this metaphor the longer I've been living in it for the last six or seven weeks. It would have been nice if we were able to take our house apart brick by brick. Instead, this pandemic burnt it to the fucking ground. Oh, yeah. What's, what, what would be lunacy is if we didn't take the time to build it back the right way. And that, that's, you know, that's what we cook, how we treat our people, uh, what we charge, <laughs> um, you know, what kind of uh, foods, what kind of role a restaurant's going to play in our food system moving forward. I think it really is, I think it really is important. And, you know, the, the, the other piece of it, and, and I've, I've been reading so much of this on, um, in social media, I follow a ton of, you know, chefs and restaurant owners and 
cooks and and bartenders and servers and I mean I just I, I have them all set aside in one feed and overwhelmingly there there had been this um, sort of lemming like uh, leap over the cliff looking for you know big money stardom all the rest of this kind of stuff that that are, are actually very fleeting things um, it wasn't so much there's an aspect of this disease that turned the mirror around on our industry to reveal some of its uglier truths. There were still a lot of people who got into this business because they just wanted to make a really good sandwich for people that they loved. Absolutely. Over the last 20 years, a lot of people got into this business because they wanted things. And whether it's the food business or advertising business or insurance business or accounting business, if that's your goal, that, you know, that's good. Bravo for you for being honest with yourself. But it comes with a whole different set of problems that can rub when you chase things from a spiritual standpoint, from a, um, you know, a, a self-care standpoint, that starts to get into some really dangerous territory. So hopefully there's a reset here for everyone that it's not about, you know, you know, movie makers generations ago didn't do it to get rich. They got into it because they were in love with the medium and they wanted to create you know, art that way. Then they wanted to create more commercial work that way. Then all of a sudden, then the money followed because it was really popular. The same thing happened with food. You can't fault anyone. You can't fault some of the today's, you know, uh, big success stories for like, wow, you know, you, you have 20 restaurants. It's like, yeah, but they started with one. It was really risky. Right. You know, I, I was around, you know, I remember, you know, a young Austrian chef coming to America named Wolfgang Puck, you know, I mean, it's just like it, it, he took profound risk, right? And, and struggled mightily early in his career. The, the thing was, he was very creative and extremely talented and figured it out. You can't fault him for being successful today. It's a much different, much different environment. But what you can do is you can create a different template for people moving forward in that if you are chasing things, there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of issues. There should be higher barriers to entry, right? What do you mean? What I mean is at this stage in the game, and we see a lot of this, I personally believe that the, one of the reasons that the failure rate is so high in the industry is obviously the fundamentals are wrong, bad, not not ideal. But the other is anyone with financing can open a restaurant. Correct. Right? Not you can't do the same thing with a law firm. You can't do the same thing right. with a medical office. That's right. Um, right. The, and and the third the, the the third leg to your stool that you're building, I can't think of another industry. If you and I went this afternoon and went to a theater and watched Star Wars, we wouldn't turn to each other and say, you know what we're going to do tomorrow? <laughs> and you'd say, what, Andrew? It's like, let's make a movie. I mean, yeah. maybe we drag out a super, I mean, we, we do it on our own for fun or use our iPhones and, you know, the apps that come on it. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. But I can't tell you how many times, and, and I'm, I'm a little older than you are, I get a call from people. It's like, hey, we've been dining out three or four times a week. Me and my two buddies, we've, we've each got 500 grand. We want to open this restaurant. Can your hospitality company consult on it? And I, and I literally, I said, I said, 
we could, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to steal your money. I mean, like, have you ever worked in restaurants? Have you done, you know I mean? And sometimes you get in there and you find, you know, oh yeah, it's a barbecue place. And my buddy, Steve spends 40 hours a week barbecuing and he's got a professional and you get a picture and you're like, holy shit, these guys, all they need is a good coleslaw recipe and they, they could do it. Right. But it is so strange. This, our business is so sexy. It's so, uh, on the, the mythology, the mythology around it has been built up and, and people enjoy it so much. Who doesn't love sitting in a crowded, fun restaurant, sharing time with friends? You just feel like you're a part of something really spectacular. And I think that feeds this, this zeitgeist that tells anyone, hey, if you like food, you can own a restaurant. Now, the reality is, as you hinted at the beginning, with so many of the metrics wrong, with it being a pennies business with 95% of the money that comes in going right out the back door. It, it, it's, it's too fragile an ecosystem, even for experienced restaurateurs to navigate. So yeah, you're right. To look forward, we have to look back. And I, I don't know what your day to day looks like, but I, I do know that I went from working 80 to hundred hours a week to literally being on unemployment. Um, and, and one of the things that it afforded me, is the opportunity to reflect back on my life and the choices I made because I've been in this industry my whole life. So I, I've never really questioned any, any facet of it. I, I just rolled with it because this is what it is. Um, have you had the opportunity to reflect on your past and your professional career? And if so, like what, what resulted from that? Wow. Uh, this just went to a, a nice conversation to a six hour, uh, jam fest. <laughs> um, let me answer that a couple of ways. Um, I, I too am basically on unemployment, except I don't qualify. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm, I'm f- fully a one percenter, right? I mean, I, I've, the last 15 years of my career, I've been very successful, um, uh, materially. The, 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 the unemployment that I'm dealing with right now is that all of my businesses are really shuttered. We do have some contract work and some fulfillment on our production side. And that took us up to like this week. And now this week with so many states reopening, a lot of the work that my production company is doing, we, we make my shows, but we also make a lot of other shows for other people, digital content for brands. The phone it has started to ring again a little bit. So it's, it's sort of a fascinating thing because I've predicated the last 28 years of my life. Once I got sober to not only a daily reflection, but at times a several times a day reflection. I also have committed myself because I'm an active member of 12 step groups to doing regular inventory. You know, sometimes I'll have a problem in my life and the, the tools that I learned when I, got sober and that I continue to learn how to use these tools the longer that I've been sober. Um, I actually do written inventories of problems and some people just call them pros and cons lists, right? Um, There are a lot of note scribblers, but sometimes putting something down on paper is really valuable. I learned that when I got sober and I learned it in 12 step groups. I didn't come into my business life with that. I exported that from my, you know, my personal experience. Um, So I'm always 
taking inventory. I'm constantly writing things down. I'm constantly, you, you mentioned the, the whiteboard earlier with my, my new mantra, but it's like, I'm in a room filled. I even, my, the walls are whiteboards and you can see there, I just, I, I sit here and scribble and take notes and have tons of pieces of paper everywhere as well as I hate to tell you what my, uh, uh, homepage on my computer looks like. Um, the, so I'm, a, I'm obsessive compulsive when it comes to that. So that's, that's number one. Number two, a business, a, a human being, any ecosystem that doesn't regularly take stock of where they are is doomed to fail. I mean, that is like, I mean, that's the kind of thing I tell my kid. He's 15 and a half. Um, about every aspect of life. If you're not, it's, you know, don't be you know, don't grind yourself to death by, you know, you know, and killing your spontaneity because you're, you're overanalyzing every move you make, but you have to regularly take inventory um, about what is and isn't going on. So I just, when I, right before our talk, I had an hour in the office with our company's GM uh, going through exactly, we literally said those exact words. Um, and what we're asking everyone in our companies is to slow down emotionally and slow down mentally just enough so that when we're out, whatever the other side of this looks like, whenever that is, the idea is slow down enough so that you're learning from what's going on right now. Because we do have, to your point, many of us have, an opportunity to do things that we never had before. Now, one of the things that we're doing in our production company, very tactically, uh, because there I'm using PPP dollars and we've brought back uh, all of our work, everyone's working from home and doing different stuff, is we are very tactically working on ops and org issues that over the last year and a half, we never had a time to address. And so we're actually going to make our business a better place for the human beings that work there. And we're using our time right now to do that. Do I think that that will have value to our company? Incredible value. Am I ashamed to say that we backburnered it for the last year and a half? Absolutely. I have shame when I admit that. But the reality was, is that we also had bills to pay and I was trying to support people. I mean, you know, my motivation wasn't wrong. I just was, I was doing the best that I could. Uh, but the learning is now that I have the time, I can keep doing what I'm doing and expect a different result, or I can actually change the way we're working. And we're actually changing the way that we're working. We're doing the same thing at our hospitality uh, company. And in a way, we're doing the same thing with our marketing group, but that's not even back online uh, yet because all of our business went away. Um, so it's, it's, we are doing that. We are reassessing. We are, you know, safety, cash, pivot. You know, we're pivot, 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 pivot. Um, sometimes every day, uh, occasionally within a deal itself, maybe a couple of times a day based on what the facts on the ground are telling us. But to ignore the lessons that are being screamed at us from the universe uh, is, would be, would be insanity and ignorance times 10. Well, and on top of fighting to save your own businesses, you're also fighting to save the industry at large. Well, the, 
see, this is the interesting thing. What I, what I learned when I got sober was that the only thing that worked for me to quiet my brain, um, which, which by the way, was the thing that got me into the most trouble was the velocity and speed of my brain and my thoughts. When, what all those inventories, those first five, six years of sobriety taught me was that it was, and still today, my biggest problem is velocity. As my velocity would increase in whatever area of my life, I would make mistakes. So what would take me, uh, what got me into velocity was what was going on in my head. What would quiet my own head and take me out of myself and take me out of selfishness and put me into other centeredness that would put me into being right-sized, that would put me into a place to be more successful. I'm talking personally, you know, just relationships. I'm talking about work. Um, was, uh, Was slowing down, but I didn't know how to do that. And it was suggested to me that if I did things for other people, everything in my life would slow down. I wasn't thinking about me. I wasn't working about me. I wasn't working on me. I wasn't worried about me. I was, none of it was about me. Um, It it almost became like a yoga and it, it created incredible space for things to happen in my life. You know, I got married. I became a parent. I was able to launch businesses. I mean, just like incredible things happened. So I use that same mechanism today. So when this thing, uh, you know, I'm before the C-19 pandemic, I sat on four or five boards. I was very active locally and nationally. Well, in, in some cases internationally, because I work with uh, both one and the uh, International Rescue Committee um, on, on gl- more global programs uh, and occasionally with uh, different groups within the UN. Um, and the need just became explosive. So my phone didn't stop ringing. And my biggest problem is saying no. I tend to say yes to everything, but it felt like this was a time. Um, my, my friend Will told me last year was his year of saying no and how successful that was. So this year, 2020, was my year of saying no. And we actually talked about it in in our board meetings with the with the people who helped me steer my my business. I said, "This is the year of me saying no. I'm just going to focus on a couple of things, and we're going to say no to everything else." And then this happened, and it became the year of saying yes. Um, so I'm completely overextended. I I said to someone last night, I I, I don't think I've worked this hard in my life. I I'm here at the office from eight to four or five. And then I go home and take an hour or two off, eat dinner, walk the dog, try to relax a little. And then I have a three, four hour work session at home to catch up on everything to get ready for the next day. Then I try to, you know, relax a little bit more at home. Can't just go right to bed. And so I'm, you know, sleeping five, six hours a night and just doing this sort of like balls to the wall, like thing. But it's extremely fulfilling and it's making a difference. I, I was on a meeting yesterday, uh, a state meeting, a, 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 a subgroup of our governor's uh, crisis response team. And we're working on safety considerations for Minnesotans going back to work in uh, hotel and restaurant industries, hospitality. And I hung up the meeting and we had made some, some good progress yesterday as our state is getting ready to figure out what opening up looks like 
in restaurants and hotels and yeah. bowling alleys and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And I realized, you know, it's, I mean, you're the first person I actually have mentioned this to, I think, where it's, where it's public. And I'm not saying it to pat myself on the back. It's the kind of thing that you do in private that when it's all over and said and done, you said, wow, that whatever, 30 hours over two or three weeks, I got to contribute whatever it was that I could to something that was purely for the, the public good in the state that gave me my life back. I mean, that is just like super fulfilling. It's awesome. And there's no money. There's no prestige. Your name doesn't go anywhere. No one knows that it exists. We, we are a, a subcommittee that just toils in anonymity up, up until this moment. Um, but it's really emblematic. It's, it's the same thing that happens. I have a friend who's like, hey, let's, let's cook up some food and deliver it. You know, the, let's not hook up with a big agency. Let's not put it on Instagram. He's like, I really want to he was actually coming to me because he says, I want to do it for me, but I don't know how to do it. And I know you're doing it on a lot of different levels. So can, can we do something together? And I just said, yeah, you know, um, of course. So helping other people, I learned making bizarre foods, having spent a lot of time with tribal people around the world. Every time I asked a, uh, a member of a first people of the world, uh, and especially especially, almost without exception, first peoples who lived indistinguishably from the way their ancestors lived 20,000 years ago and people who really had not changed their, their culture. When I would ask them, uh, I feel like Bill Murray in Caddyshack, you know, what's <laughs> the secret to you know, happiness in the universe? Why are we here on earth? Uh, but I would literally ask them those questions. I found the answers fascinating. Sometimes it made it into the show, sometimes it did, but I remember every answer. And universally it was, we're, we're on this earth to love each other and, 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 and nurture each other. That's, you know, and then they'd look at me like I was an idiot and walk away. And they were right. I was the idiot, which is why I was asking them. And I found the most fulfilling stuff that I do in my life falls into, into those categories, you know, of doing things to help other people, whether it's the small gesture, which I should, I should mention, is way more fulfilling than the big gesture. It's really nice to be on, you know, boards or, you know, get your name in the, in the media for being one of those people that's helping or, or whatever. That's, that's great. And you hope it's inspiring and there's a necessary part of it and it raises more money and awareness and there's a good piece of that. But, you know, uh, every night, I'm typically I'm the last one to leave the uh, office because I have these Zoom calls or then I do IG Lives or something. And it's, you know, five or six, you know, the, the handful of people, normally there's 47, 50 people in the office. Now, nowadays it's two or three, right? But I'm usually the last to leave. Last to leave has to clean the coffee machine, you know, because there's, there's no one else to do it. We don't have, we're, we're, we're mopping the floors and our office. We are, you know, everyone is gone. It's closed. So we have to do, we're doing everything ourselves. And, you know, it's a pretty big space. And so I go and it's like a yoga. I spend 15 minutes. I load the dishwasher. I do the, you know, coffee machine, stuff like that. And nobody knows really who leaves last. And the reason that I know this 
is because there's an internal email for the people that come in and out of here in different ways. Sometimes editors have to come in here, other production company staff goes in to use equipment that or reset something or deal with something here that has to, requires an office visit. And people just don't know who the last one to leave is. And they send you know, the snarky office notes like, who took the Diet Coke in the fridge? Or like, <laughs> who left that burner on? Or why was that mug in the sink? Because someone has to glove up and put it in, you know, because we're all maintaining social distancing and all that stuff. So I know that nobody really knows that what it is that I'm doing. But I do that. I empty the little trash bins in people's desks and stuff. And it's it takes 10, 15 minutes and it's a small gesture. And it, that makes me feel as good or not better because I'm actually contributing to my micro community, the people who I'm building our stuff with. So whenever I'm talking about this at a public level, I sort of sum it up with a, something that one of my spiritual gurus told me a long time ago, which is, you know, look down with your, where your feet are, right? That's where you're planted. That's where you need to do your work. But our heads are also in the clouds. So doing the national thing, doing the bigger stuff is great as long as you, you're starting where your feet are planted. And I love thinking about it that way. It helps me. It's beautiful. And, and that leads to my next question, which is like, what, what can I do to service the industry? As I'm sure you can imagine. I have a fair amount of time on my hands these days. Well, I mean, I think like everybody else, everybody's asking what you could do. I would look down where your feet are. You know, I know that you're in a big city. You have an immense amount of talent. Uh, there's lots of fantastic groups and agencies out there doing a lot of really cool work. Um, you can turn, and sometimes it's not an option for people. Uh, one of my, uh, one restaurant that I co-own a very small piece is doing uh, takeout and uh, yeah, is doing takeout food. Another one is doing takeout and delivery. Another one is closed entirely. And then the fourth one that, that I own the biggest piece of is also closed entirely. And we closed days before we were told by the state of Minnesota that we had to. We did that as a safety issue. It's just the way the restaurants construct. There's no way that we could open. We, there's no way to safely open it as a community resource kitchen in a city where, and this is the really interesting part, in a city where we haven't hit the level of need when it comes to feed. Yes, we have... Uh, our food banks are stressed to the max. They're operating at two and a half, three times capacity. But our job is to support them in meeting that need, right? I don't have to open a community resource kitchen in one of my restaurants to, to, to feed more people. I can give time, money, food, volunteerism to the agencies that are already doing it. I can put something out on my Twitter feed and in, you know, ask everyone who has a free couple of hours on the weekend to go and sign up at some of these, you know, volunteer job fairs, right? I mean, there's a little, or, or do it online or however it is, right? Um, the, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, you know, is it true? Is there a need? Does it need to be done? And is it up to me to do it, right? And sometimes that third piece, it's not up to me to do it. Sometimes... I can provide 
means for other people to do it. You can't save every starfish on the beach and you also shouldn't be taking away opportunities from other people, right? So in, in the state of Minnesota, we don't need to turn every restaurant into a community resource kitchen, right? Then you'd have every restaurant making 10 meals, right? What we need to do is focus on like, what's the actual need? Let the experts, like the people who run Second Harvest Heartland or Loaves and Fishes or the government's task force, tell us what the need is. And is the need more food, more bodies, more space? The minute someone says more space, okay, I'm in, right? Um, but I know things are different where you live, right? Mm -hmm. So wherever yeah. that need is, you can go and, and address that. And I also would, would, would tell you um, what we're doing right here and the, you know, that you started this podcast is, uh, and my understanding, this is a new thing for you. Yes, sir. Yeah. So right now you're doing awareness raising that and impacting the lives of human beings in a way that you never would have done before just sitting on your duff. Right. For sure. And, you know, I, I, I happen to be a big believer, you know, someone once said to me, like, you know, do you, do you just react to life and just, you know, float, you know, like the jellyfish? That's the spiritually, we should be the jellyfish. Um, and just rise over the way the jellyfish never gets hurt, you know, the, you know, and, and I said, are you kidding me? Fuck you. Fuck the jellyfish. <laughs> the, the only fish that are floating are dead. The jellyfish is one species. It doesn't mean we have to be the salmon all the time, constantly fighting upstream, mm -hmm. right? Completely different. But sometimes we have to get into action. Life is about what we do, not what we think, right? You can't, you can't, think your way into right acting, but you can act your way into right thinking. And that's why that small gesture is so cool. When this thing started, um, I love, I make soups and stews all weekend long. It's like yoga relaxes my brain. I just like get really into it, but you know how it is. It's a, you know, like in my head, I make a pun. Next thing I know, I've got like eight quarts of borscht <laughs> and I'm just like, Oh fuck. You know? And I, I took two or three quarts and left them on, people's I froze them and left them on people's front porches and then texted them and told them it was I didn't just leave it like a <laughs> um so sometimes it's just a small gesture you know it's mm -hmm. looking in on someone nearby we had when this whole thing started before there were protocols and suggestions I hopped online and ordered a case of masks so it got back ordered back ordered back ordered and I don't know like two three weeks ago the case of masks arrived and, it, and I was like, oh, I've, number one, I forgot about it. Number two, I felt so shitty. Now, when I did it, no one was saying, uh, hey, let the health community have the mass, et cetera. Everyone was just scrambling for, I mean, this is like late February, right? right when I, early March, when I ordered these things. And uh, so we just called some friends of ours who we know have medical personnel and said, Hey, cause they came in like plastic sleeves of two fit. Like you want to sleeve the mask, take them into work. They're like, great. Yeah. Okay. We'll drive. We'll put it on your you know, front porch. Everyone has a porch here in Minnesota. Um, so th that was, you know, it's the little things. It's mm -hmm. the little things. I can't tell you how cool it was to get a couple of texts and calls, uh, I even got a note in the mail from hospital staff saying, thank you for the masks. I mean, mm -hmm. how cool is that? I mean, little gestures come back in very, very, very profound ways. Well, 
So something that I've been thinking about a lot is as an entrepreneur, I think we're optimistic by nature. As a restaurateur, I think that we're optimistic to the point that it borders on insanity, right? Um, looking at the odds and still choosing to move forward and still choosing to move forward enthusiastically. Uh, and I think I said this in the email that I had initially sent, but there's no shortage of resources out there for PPP, EIDL, you know, how to sue your insurance company, screw your landlord. Um, and, and we're all swimming in the same gutter in this moment. But, but we're going to have to look up and look out at some point and look towards the future. And I spend half my time feeling hopeless. And the other half, looking at this as like a huge opportunity to re-envision my life in this industry that I love, that I've dedicated my life to. And I'm wondering, when you envision the future of the industry from today forward, what positive changes do you see? Oh, tons. I'm, I'm focusing on the glass being half full. Um, I'm, you know, I'm accused all the time of focusing on all the negatives, mostly by haters on Twitter. Um, and that's fine. I, I think there's a difference between awareness raising and pointing out the problems and insisting on change versus what your action systems are, how you make things actionable in your life and what you're actually doing and focusing on, right? So I can sit there and can, you know, uh, complain all the time about um, uh, the skyrocketing costs of business insurance and rents that are putting restaurants out of, you know, and, and raising awareness at, at that level. And at the same time, trying to figure out how do I create businesses around new models of dining or new cultural paradigm shifts? How do we, you know, how do we navigate that? Where is, because I am an entrepreneur, I mean, I teach entrepreneurship at Babson College, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, it's like this stuff fascinates me. Mm -hmm. How do we work on this kind of stuff uh, right now so that we're ready you know, for what's coming down the pipe. And one of the things that I'm doing is working on, it's actually on that wall that I point you at, is I'm scribbling out um, a design for a really expensive, uh, low-cost model, micro-model, for feeding small communities um, that, that can exist that you might be able to create you know, I don't want to use the word chain, but multiple units of uh, that uh, don't cost a lot that keep people really well fed on really good food. I think what a lot of people are looking at is they're looking at, uh, I've said this a ton, people would ask me five years ago, what's food of the future look like? And I would say Blade Runner. And they're like, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, less rain but Blade Runner. And they said, what do you mean? And I, because I love the movie Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm like, there's that one scene where Harrison Ford is walking down the street. And he, I think he stops in one of these places, says hi to some folks, but it's actually, it looks like, uh, it looks like certain streets in, uh, in busy urban neighborhoods in Japanese cities. There's a yakitori guy with six seats. There's a tempura place with eight seats. You know, it's, a, it's small little restaurants with single service 
items, right? You go to a ramen place for ramen, you go to a chokanabi place for chokanabi, you go to a tempura place for tempura. Here in America, we want to have these restaurants that are all things to all people, and they wind up being nothing to no one. Right. I think there's going to be some fancy restaurants that, that, that make it because I think there's a bunch of people with money that are going to want to eat in them, right? Um, I, we know that there's going to be fast fooders and all the rest of that dreck all the way at the bottom. And some of that dreck is better than other dreck, but I'm basically talking about the dreck. Mm-hmm. Um, all the biggest change is happening in the middle, right, with all those independent restaurants um, that make up the, such a huge segment of our population. And that's where all the exciting change is going to, is going to come from. In my lifetime, and I've been working in food since I was 14, I'm 58, I've never met a more creative, resilient, pivot powerful group of people than food folks or a more giving community. So I think if anyone's going to figure out, it's going to be people from our industry. And, you know, it is, the I think, you know, famous names, right, that we associate with, you know, dining up here in a certain level of this are going to be doing something way over here. And the the template is already there, right? I mean, uh, you know, when, when, uh, when Mark left Del Posto, right, uh, three years ago and did the, his quick service pasta concept, mm-hmm. um, that was pasta flyer. Um, fucking brilliant, right? Um, I know it didn't work out very well uh, for uh, Daniel and, and Roy when they created their uh, you know, fast food model. It ended up closing. But kind of like pasta flyer, um, and, and there's other examples of this around the country, those folks were ahead of their time. Right. I, you cannot convince me there's going to be a hundred of those types of projects launched neighborhood focused with a give back proposition, sustainable wages, different kind of model charging what food really costs, but doing it in a different, healthier way. I think we're going to eat finally knock on wood, less meat in this country. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, th- that's vital. I, I am, I'm not a vegetarian. I try to do vegetarian before dinner because it's like, it keeps my mind like super healthy, uh, brain function wise. Um, I get too tired during the day if I pick out on stuff that has too much animal protein in it, but, and it's better for my waistline, which is a constant problem anyway. Um, but you know, part of what drives, you know, some of the more expensive items out there are animal proteins, right? And if we were eating smaller amounts of them, like they do in many other countries, and they were the accent to the dish and not the, right? I mean, that's how we've been eating at home for the last eight, nine years. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll put out three, four vegetable dishes and, uh, you know, whatever, 16, 18-ounce piece of meat that's that's roasted or grilled or sautéed or whatever it is, cut up so that everyone can share it so that everyone ends up eating whatever, a, a piece of animal protein that, that resembles a hockey puck or a deck of cards, right? right. Um, it, I just think that these are the, the sort of obvious changes that are going to happen. I mean, Tracy Desjardins was on a panel that I was running at CIA uh, last fall, and she closed a jardinier uh, after 25 years of being in business. 
And her story is the story of so many uh, really good restaurants. And the, the, the 30 second version is this. When she opened the restaurant, she was charging $17 for the chicken dish, right? When she closed the restaurant, she was charging $19 for the chicken dish, right? But in between, over those 25 years, her rent went up 7,000%. She was offering like, and then over the course of the last three years, because it's where she landed as a human being, maybe over the last five years, she said, uh, she would rather than take all the profit out of the restaurant. Um, and by the way, wasn't a lot of profit. For sure. She would turn that into giving her employees paid sick leave, uh, a fair living wage, uh, making sure no one worked more than 40 hours, like eliminating all the, making a, a much more, more lifestyle friendly uh, job for everybody who was a member of the Jardinier family. And what she found after doing that for a little while and running the numbers is that it turned her business upside down. So she closed it. Mm-hmm. Now that was predicated. She was, she was applying 2020 uh, sustainability models and healthy business practices to a, a business model that she conceived of 25 years ago. Right. Right. That's much different than you and I opening up a, I'll make it up, a vegan ramen shop, right, with 12 seats where we each get two days off a week, we're covering for the other one, and we have like two other cooks, and it's here's six flavors, and it's 14 bucks a bowl, and we serve sake and beer, and that's it, and we figure out a way to make it so that we can have a life and still be in the food business. doesn't mean that 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 ramen could be the the single best bite anyone eats in their whole life, Mm -hmm. right? Which is the same thing that, you know, restaurants like 11 Madison Park predicate themselves on. You know, that experience. I think the experience of eating and being with people is the toughest thing to navigate over the next 18 months because I think that is going to be constantly changing depends on how this virus comes back, what neighborhood you're in, what part of the country. We'll see what happens. But I think that people are still going to eat. People like you and I still want to serve people food. And I think that's a cultural constant. Understanding that the podcast is obviously many people are going to listen to it. It gets pushed out to both patrons and restaurateurs. Is there anything you'd like to say to restaurateurs to the other people in the industry that are listening? Yeah. Um, I have, I've never, I've never been so loved, so inspired, uh, so, um, brilliantly switched on by any group of people I've ever, ever come across in my life. Everything that I learned, you know, everything I learned, I learned in, you know, kindergarten, everything I learned, I learned in restaurants. I learned how to care for people. I learned what it really means to have relationships. I learned how to recover in my life. I learned what's important. Um, we have that magic in our industry. And Winston Churchill very famously said, I'm one of those big Churchills. I'm a big Churchill guy. Uh, you know, when you're walking through hell, sorry, when you're going through hell, keep going. Mm. This is hell. This, this, 
global pandemic has affected our industry in profound ways uh, and, and in ways that a lot of other restaurants are, are, or a lot of other industries are not dealing, being felt the same way, right? Mm-hmm. And my hope, I know a lot of people, are, we, we have friends of mine who've already announced they're just not reopening, right? And I hope for those people out there, they're able to take a break I want everybody to lean into what makes themselves happy. The one thing about this uh, global pandemic that I've taken away, like if you said one thing, it's like it's, it, if you get quiet and if you do enough inventory and reflection, you figure out what makes you happy and you lean into that. I wrote a letter to my son about this yesterday, actually telling him that it was our time communicating that actually made me happiest. That's when I'm at my happiest, when I'm, when I'm communicating with my son, not when he's being sullen. I mean, he's a teenager and sitting in the car next to me and we're in the middle of some argument. But when he and I are communicating, that's my favorite experience. My favorite thing to do is to actually communicate and share life with my son. And so I told him, I plan on leaning more into that. So I would encourage people to, um, to lean into their happiness. And if that means uh, that they decide to leave the business, so be it. But I hope, I hope and pray that this incredible group of folks who have given so much to so many over the years stays and reimagines a food future for everyone that works for everyone. We all win when we all win. This industry gave itself a ton of shit, and rightfully so, for years the Me Too movement, mental health, abusive workers, inequitable systems, treatment of people of color, um, substandard wages, gender problem. I mean, like everything, everything different, right? We know that we needed to address everything. You brought that up at the beginning of the interview, right? But in all fairness, is there another industry? Forget about what's happened the last couple months during the C-19 thing, but close your eyes and think of last December. Is there an industry that uh, has pivoted so quickly and leaned into it? When I look at what chefs like Ashley Christensen are so, and I'm just picking one out of thousands of people who are so uh, re- recreated their business plan, how they train people, how, they, how she and Kate run their restaurants, right? And people all over the country were doing this. Um, we saw the problem. We still have a long, we still had a long way to go, right? We're, we're on pause. The restaurant industry is on pause right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I meant. Like when we pick up, let's make this a better, we have the opportunity to make all those situations better. And I'm counting on this incredible group of doers and, you know, action planners um, to, to do that work. Feeding, feeding the world is the most noble, beautiful thing that I've ever been a part of. And I, I just can't wait to see what the future is, is like because it is going to be amazing. I know, I'm a glass half full guy. But I really do think the circumstances we're in are temporary. I wish so many people didn't have to go through so much pain and that feeling of hopelessness and all that other stuff that accompanies ambiguity and uncertainty. Uh, those, that's the most anxiety I mean, it's the not knowing that's a crusher, but that's when if I, I just I just hope and pray that people have the ability to hit pause um, and let's come back even stronger. 
That's Chef Andrew Zimmern. If you're interested in learning more about the chef's projects, check out andrewzimmern.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.